a professor at George Mason University by the name of Tyler Cowen, uh, remember that name, wrote an article a couple months ago titled The Aliens Among Us. Now that might not sound weird in our day and age because you know there's been a lot of chatter about illegal immigration and border security and we're in an election year so aliens among us might not uh, really you know it makes sense however mr cowan was not talking about immigration mr cowan was talking about full-on like x-files et outer space, the aliens among us. Now, in an ironic twist of fate, my wife's maiden name also happens to be Cowan. And we just got back from the uh, East Mountains of Tennessee, where we got to meet the whole Cowan family. Her father, uh, their, their ancestors actually settled Cowan Town. And so they got to take some pictures, her and her sisters, uh, there in Cowan Town. And point being, I was really hoping to meet Tyler Cowan and, you know, find out if crazy ran in the family or if that was just something that we, you know, experienced. Uh, yeah, that was a joke. But uh, I did not meet Tyler. Nonetheless, there were some, never mind. But uh, Aliens Among Us is where I was going with that. The premise for the article, Aliens Among Us, was that U.S. Navy pilots have seen an uptick in unexplained aerial phenomena. And the idea, an argument goes, they're taking seriously uh, UFOs, and we should too. Which even after reading the article, I'm still not on that team. However, a number of other people are. Recent polls indicate that up to 6% of Americans claim not just to believe in UFOs, but they assert they have been abducted by extraterrestrials. In fact, it's such a popular idea, there's actually an international center for abduction research. If you're unemployed and looking for an interesting job, might I suggest to you the International Center for Abduction Research. If you're a young person looking for a university, find one that you can study alien abduction majors, right? Okay. Uh, Yet, just to prove how far reaching this concept really is, I don't know if you understand and realize this, but from 2007 to 2012, the Pentagon had a line item in their budget for roughly $5 million per year of U.S. tax dollar money, $5 million uh, for a program called the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program. The goal was to figure out if there were any unexplained flying aircraft that could potentially cause harm to Americans. Now, officially, the program has been shut down, but if you notice my air quotes around the word officially, it's because the entire program is classified, and despite being uh, shut down, a former U.S. Navy pilot in 2017 claims that he was interviewed by representatives of the defunct program, so who knows if it actually is or not. That being said, uh, the reason I bring all of this information to your attention is because we're starting a brand new series of messages 
message, messages today in the book of 1 Peter. And this word alien is going to come up a couple times. And so it's important for you to understand how I'm using the term moving forward. The term alien, according to the kind folks there at Merriam-Webster, is defined as relating, belonging, or owing allegiance to another country or government. If you thesaurus the word, it'll bring up the synonyms, exile, immigrant, sojourner, foreigner, or my favorite, outlander. Hence the title of this series and group of talks. What I'm trying to help you understand is you do not have to believe in Martians or UFOs or abduction studies to understand that aliens actually do exist. Matter of fact, if you're a student of history, you should know that before the conquest of the new world here in the Americas, legends of fair-skinned visitors from abroad uh, were told to human beings. And these pale people eventually turned out to be very real indeed through Columbus and Cortez, among others. So as we get ready to study God's word, what I really want you to think about is that scenario. There is no internet. There is no social media. The only way for you to experience the world around you is through your geography and the people that are around you. The furthest you've ever traveled from home is only a couple miles, and that was just so that you could find food. Imagine sitting around with uh, the, the group of villagers, and an elder in the community comes around the campfire and starts telling you stories, legends about these people out there from far away. They look like you in one sense of the word. They're human beings. They walk like you. They, they speak in a language, albeit different from you, but, but they're people nonetheless. And they have different customs and different ways of dressing and all of these things make them different, but it's still just a legend. You have no experience of this in life. Yet one day, it's no longer a story. Imagine they arrive. You're seeing somebody that looks different than you for the first time ever in your life. Imagine wondering, who are these people? What are they like? Are they like me? What do they want? Are they peaceful? I titled my message this morning, The Aliens Among Us, and a kind of homage to Tyler Cowan, but also because the question that we're going to try and wrestle to the ground this morning is what does it mean to be a resident alien as a Christian in an unbelieving world? Because make no mistake, according to the Word of God, we are aliens. This world is not our home. We are to look different, act different, love different, and ultimately live different. More importantly, Living like aliens is utterly necessary because as we're about to see, living as aliens is the only pathway to our real home, the home God has prepared for us in heaven. So listen to me now. If you choose to be at home in this world, then you will put your hope in this world. And if there's anything, one thing that I know beyond anything else is that this world will ultimately let you down. And if you haven't experienced it yet, you will. Because there's always going to be somebody prettier, somebody richer, somebody smarter, somebody happier. And if you don't have a category in your mind of where to file those facts, then you're going to be let down. You're going to be hopeless. Maybe that's how you even came in here 
this morning. So with that in mind, the question of how to keep our alien identity uh, because we're citizens of heaven here on earth, that's not an idle question. It is eternally important, which is why this book of First Peter is so significant. And before we can dive in, a couple of helpful things to point out. First of all, it's not really a book so much as it is a letter. As I've mentioned, the underlying theme of the letter is to help define how Christians are supposed to live in society. Peter says to his readers then, and in a very real way to us now, that you might be living in a certain place under certain constitutional government rules and regulations with specific guidelines and all that, but this is not your home. Sure, your passport might say USA, but your birth certificate says child of God. And we got to figure out how to live that way because with that birthright comes certain rules and responsibilities and rights and regulations and ultimately rewards. So right out of the gate, I want to point out that Peter does not call his readers to withdraw from society, but rather to engage with it. He wants us living in such a way that might be expected of foreigners who wish to maintain their identity of origin. That is, we are to dwell respectfully in our host nation, but we are to participate in culture only to the extent that its values and customs coincide with our own and the ones that we wish to preserve. Despite what you've heard or maybe been taught, this is not full assimilation nor complete isolation. And so if you brought a Bible, I hope you did, go ahead and grab it. If you open it up to the very back, there should be some maps back there, maybe a concordance, some of that stuff. Start flipping to your left. You should come to Revelation and Jude, and then there's going to be some Johns, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, then 2 Peter. You're almost there. 1 Peter is where we're going to land. I would encourage you between Sundays to read this letter for yourself. It's not very long, but we're going to be in it for the next eight weeks, and so it might be helpful for you to know what's going on. For the sake of convenience, I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation. So if you're using something on your phone or a, a device and you can change translations, New Living Translation. But here we go. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Pause. Now you know why it's going to take us eight weeks. We got through a sentence. That's all we got. Uh, but I want us to establish, who is Peter? Why should we listen to him? What is an apostle? Are those still a thing? Uh, we need answers to all those questions if we're going to figure out how this letter really makes a difference for your life here in 2019. So, first, Peter. See what I did there? First, Peter. We're in first. Never mind. Don't worry about that. Okay. Peter is quite honestly indicative of all of us in this room. You should listen to his letter because he is largely like you. He's an employee of a small business. He has to work hard as an, uh, to earn an income. He's a fisherman. Besides being a fisherman, he all, we also know that he's a family man. And we know from Scripture that he has a brother who also happens to be a disciple. We know he's married. We read about his mother-in-law. In fact, if you read the story, you know that she was super sick, almost to the point of death. Jesus shows up to the house and he heals her. You know what she did in response? Yeah, made everybody some food. How amazing is that? You know, I'm not saying that women belong in the kitchen, but... The Bible just said that. I don't know. I'm just kidding. 
That is not the point of the story. The only reason I said that is Laura's not in this service, so don't tell her I said that. Uh, In addition to being a family man, we know Peter is a loyal friend. He's one of 12 disciples, but he's also part of the inner circle, one of three. Peter, James, and John had unique access to Jesus. So there's the larger 12 disciples and then the three that got to do things that the others didn't. Uh, We read about uh, one time Peter, James, and John going up on a mountain with Jesus where uh, Jesus was uh, transfigured and he reflected the glory of God through light and he had a conversation with Elijah and Moses who were long since dead. Furthermore, Peter, like many of you, had a nickname. His birth name is Simon. Jesus liked to call him Cephas, Aramaic for the word rock, or the Greek word is Petros, where we get Peter. Peter means rock. And most notably, he, like all of us, is an imperfect sinner. He had a foul mouth and oftentimes said whatever he wanted, unfiltered, which frequently got him in trouble. I can relate. See above comment about women in the kid, you know what I mean? Like uh, one day Jesus even called him Satan because of the things that Peter was saying. So the most encouraging thing I hope you can leave here remembering is if God can use this guy, then there's hope for me. And you're right, there is hope for all of us. Now, where Peter is absolutely distinct from everyone in this room is in regards to this title, Apostle. None of us are apostles. Nobody outside of the 12 listed in Scripture are apostles either. Apostles are the authoritative delegates of God that Jesus commissioned to write the Bible, specifically the New Testament, and start the church. Once they did those things, there was no longer a need for apostleship. Now, this can be kind of confusing because the Bible does teach that there is a spiritual gift of apostleship but it is in no way equal to that of being an apostle. Easiest way I can explain it is that the original 12 disciples, like they were commissioned to create the church, modern day disciples who might have this spiritual gift of apostleship, they can help facilitate creating new churches and new ministries. But again, they do not have the authority that Jesus gave these 12 men. Here's something else that might help. If we're thinking in terms of citizenship and our citizenship is in heaven, uh, then this book is our constitution. And Jesus commissioned the apostles to write the constitution, but nowadays he gives us disciples to teach us what's in the constitution. It, unlike the U.S. constitution, is perfect and has no need for revision, and so there's no more need for apostles. So hundreds of millions of disciples, 12 Apostles, Peter is one. We should listen to him for that fact alone, but we should also listen to him because he can relate to us. He, he, we know things about his life and, and he knows things about our lives because people aren't all that different throughout history. Let's keep going. The letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says, I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners. There's our word, parapodemos, alien aliens, exiles, sojourners, outlanders, writing to them because they're living in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That would be modern-day Turkey. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, those were Roman provinces in that time. 
uh, articulated in clockwise fashion. It's actually just modern day Turkey today. Obviously, Peter is intending to write to a specific group of people during a specific time, but God in his wisdom looked into the fullness of time and knew that we would be reading this letter as well. And we too are God's chosen people living as exiles in a foreign world. More on that to come. Verse two, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more grace and peace. Yes, please, more grace and peace to go around. Now, these two verses, it might sound weird, but essentially this is just Peter's salutation. He's saying, yo, what's, what's going down, everybody? I'm trying to, you know, in your email, the same thing you do. Hey, it's Landon. Uh, just want you to know I'm thinking about you. Grace and peace, carbon copy, everybody, you know, text message, whatever. This is Peter's way of doing all of that. Uh, it sounds weird because he wrote a lot of verses and words about that, but different language, different time, all that. Here's where it gets really crazy because verses three through 12 are actually just one very long sentence in the original letter. Uh, Talk about a run-on sentence, right? You're failing that assignment if you turn that in an English class. Ten verses of a run-on sentence. What's most interesting about these ten verses, and it's fascinating because despite it being so long, there's no explicit commands, there's no explicit exhortations, It is simply Peter's way to set up the readers and the listeners of the letter uh, psychologically for what will follow. In other words, this is Peter's thesis statement. Don't know if you all had to do that in high school and college where you wrote a paper and you wrote a one-sentence thesis about what was to follow. Uh, That's what Peter's doing. He's obviously not very good at it, okay, because it went on forever, but uh, we want to read it as one sentence, and then we're going to come back and try and break it down. Okay, here we go. Verse 3, all praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests purify and purifies gold though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him, even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him, and you rejoice with a glorious inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. This salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves but for you and for us. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Here's my summary of Peter's 10 verse summary. Christians are not different in terms of what we go through, but in how we go through them. 
Christians, you might want to jot this down, are not different in terms of what we go through, but in terms of how we go through it. That is Peter's point. Because of Jesus, which he talks a whole lot about, we are different, but we're not different in terms of what we go through, but rather how we go through it. You should know if you're new to the Bible that God never teaches your life is going to be birds singing and unicorns dancing. In fact, 15 times in this letter alone, Peter references suffering and trial. In fact, in case anybody is ever tempted to teach and tell you that your life should be bunnies on rainbows eating chocolates, Peter uses eight different Greek words to talk about the suffering that you will endure. I don't know about you, but I actually find that encouraging. I don't like it, but I'm encouraged but to know that the Bible's not trying to hide anything from me. You know what I'm saying? Like how horrible would it be if the Bible promised a pain-free life and then you had to bury a child? How horrible would it be if you got devastating, uh, devastating health diagnosis or you ended up going through a divorce or lost a job or had addiction problems or abuse or infidelity, bankruptcy, the list could go on and on and on. How evil would God be if he hid those things from us or tried to sugarcoat them in such a way that they're not that big of a deal? How terrible would the Bible be if it taught that if you just live a certain way, then your life is going to be glorious and amazing and all of those things. No, Christians aren't different in terms of what we go through. We're different in terms of how we go through them. Now, in fairness, I don't want to discount anything that you've gone through or minimize any of the struggles that you all have faced, some of which I've maybe already even named, but just in an effort to help put this letter into context, when Peter is referencing suffering and trials, he's talking about the Roman government coming to your home, kicking down your door, only to then assault your wife and daughter in front of you, then to dip them in tar, twist their hair in such a way to make a wick, light them in fire, light them on fire, and impale them on a stick in front of of the palaces of the Roman Empire to give the place a light at night. After you were a witness to this, you and your son would then be taken to the Colosseum where you would most likely be killed by a gladiator or an animal for the amusement of the mob. This is what Peter is talking about. This is real life during first century Christianity. And uh, I don't want us to, to, again, minimize what you're going through, but I do want us to spend a little bit of time discussing what trials and suffering are, because as you know, we are going to go through something. All of us will. And if it's not about what we go through, but how we go through it, then we need to chat a little bit about how we're supposed to go through it. So you might want to jot some of these things down to help you. First of all, trials are varied. Uh, I think God is asking us to consider that trials are varied. Look at verse 6. So be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead. Talk about a different perspective. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while. We're going to talk about wonderful joy next week. So we're going to bypass that right now. Just focus on this idea of many trials. Peter says you might have to endure many trials. Many in terms of quantity and many in terms of category. You know, suffering can come a lot, and it can come in a lot of different ways. This is important for us to realize because your trials might not look like my trials. 
And it's often easy for us to look at somebody else's trials and say, well, if they would just do this and, you know, I did this and this is what helped me. And if I can go through that, they can go through that. And how quickly we are to forget that we're not them. And a lot of people are, are quick to, to judge your journey based on what mile they walk in on, but they haven't seen the race from the beginning. You know, our starting lines are different. Our finish line is the same, but we're going to take a lot of different trails to get there. And we have to remember that and keep that as our perspective. Our paths aren't the same. Our trials are varied in terms of quantity, in terms of category. They're also different in terms of duration. It says here that we're going to endure it for a little while. Now, your little might be different than my little, and your definition of a little while might be different from somebody else's, but that's what Peter says. We're going to have to endure many trials for a little while, and we've got to put that in our minds, that praise God, there's an end to what we're about to go through. And if God is with us, but a thousand years are like a day to God, then the whole perspective of time enduring through trials is going to be different for every single one of us. Again, we've got to remember that while we're in the midst of it. We're not different in terms of what. We're different in terms of how. And our how is to recognize there is light at the end of the tunnel. I can get through this because God is with me. Most people don't struggle with the how, though. Most people know they can get through it. Most people struggle with the why. Like, oh, I know I can, but why am I having to at all? Like, why are there troubles even to begin with? And thankfully, Peter actually tells us that. He says trials meet needs. That's why trials happen, because trials meet needs. Look at verse 7. These trials, what's the point of them? They're going to show you that your faith is genuine. I'll say it like this. A faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. I don't presume to know why God chose to order the world like that. I just know that he did. And I see case after case in Scripture where that's what happens. Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's faith is tested. Noah. Noah had to build a boat despite the fact he'd never seen rain or a flood. His faith is tested. Jesus. Jesus was led into the desert in order to be tested. A guy named Paul. Paul traveled around the Roman Empire starting churches, trying to convince people of the difference that Jesus could make in their life because he raised from the dead and we can be made new because of that truth. And he started these churches and he would often write letters back to the churches after he left to help them navigate the situations that they would be going through. In one of his letters to the Colossians, Paul calls Luke, Mark, and Demas his fellow workers. He says the same thing in a letter to a guy named Philemon. But the reason you don't know who Demas is is because Paul wrote these uh, grievous words to a guy named Timothy. He says, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas threw away his hope in the future world in order to live for the love of the present world. His faith wasn't genuine. See, God is promising to meet your needs, but so is the world. The question before you today and every single day that you wake up is who are you going to believe? Am I going to believe that God's going to meet my needs? Or am I going to trust in the world to meet my needs? Sometimes God uses the challenges of the world to make us fall in love with him. 
But sometimes the temptations of the world make us fall in love with it. That's the difficulty of this human life. But that's also why we can learn that trials meet needs, that you can trust God to always come through. Write this down. Trials are refining. Peter writes that trials are refining. He uses the analogy of gold. I don't know if you've ever watched Gold Rush on the Discovery Channel, but uh, you'll see how the process of collecting and refining gold is far from easy. It takes hours of back-breaking work and then the brutal process of digging it out and then you've got to burn it at super high temperatures in order to get all the impurities and dirt and slag out of the gold in order to sell it. And Peter says the same thing is happening in your spiritual life. You go through something difficult because God is much more interested in your holiness than he is your happiness. And he's trying to change your character because your character is the one thing that you're going to take with you to heaven where you're going to live for an eternity. And so in an effort to get the slag out of your soul, he sometimes lets you go through suffering and trial. And the point is, it's refining. What's so compelling about that, though, is that Peter writes, so when your faith remains strong through many trials, it's going to bring you much glory and praise and honor. Normally, when we talk about glory, praise, and honor, we're talking about God. But Peter writes, no, you're, you're the one that's going to bring, because it's not about what you went through, but how you went through it. And the people around you are going to be like, dude, how did you even get through that? And you're going to say, because of the power of God. And even though they're bringing you glory, you always deflect that back to the Savior of the universe. Because when you've made it through a trial and you're on the other side, you know you've done something significant. You've done something hard. You've endured. You've become better. You're more pure. You're refined. Peter uses, you're refined like gold. I hope you realize that Satan wants to use life's trials to bring out the worst in you. God wants to use life's trials to bring out the best in you. Don't we see that with our boy Job? Remember the series when God doesn't make sense, when we talked about Job and Satan shows up to God and says, and God's like, what about my boy Job? And Satan's like, hurt him. He will curse you to your face because Satan wants the worst for you. And then God's like, go for it because God wants the best for you. And in the end of the story, you see Job turning out to be way better than he was even before, which leads me to my last point. Trials are controlled by God. Trials are controlled by God. We see it with Job. We also see it though here in verse five when Peter writes, God is protecting you by his power word protected there can also be translated kept. It's actually a military word. It means to be guarded or shielded. The tense of the verb reveals that we are constantly being guarded by God. God is protecting you, which I don't think you must have heard me clearly or you don't believe it because if you would have believed it or would have heard me, you'd be way more fired up about the fact that God is is protecting you, but you do that thing again where you just stare back at me like, okay, yeah. Uh, but God 
is protecting you, and the reason that should fire you up is because Satan wants the worst for you, but God is protecting you, and now you know why you were delayed in traffic that one time, because there was a car accident up ahead, and Satan was like, yeah, that's you, and God's like, nope, God is protecting you, and now you know why your plane was delayed, and you didn't get that promotion at work, because God knew that it was going to cost you your character, and your integrity, and your family, and he says, that's not my plan for you. And God is protecting you. And now you know why you didn't get that raise because God knows that you're going to just spend that all on you like you've been doing in the past. And God is protecting you from the defilement of the world. Amen, somebody. And God is protecting you by his power assuring that all of us as believers in Christ arrive safely in our true home in heaven. See, sometimes we, because of our human limitations, think that we're in a trial, but that's not it at all. What you think is a trial is just training to teach you to trust in God, that God's got this. God is protecting you because, listen, the reality is most of your limitations are self-imposed. You don't really trust in God. You don't really believe that you have what it takes to get through that's why Peter keeps talking about this living with great expectation. And he contrasts this message of trial with a message of hope. And Peter keeps talking about this living Savior and the salvation of souls and inexpressible joy and eternal reward. And remember, these 10 verses are just Peter's introduction, his thesis statement for what's about to follow. And what is to follow in this letter is pages and pages of hope. Hope in the midst of trial. Hope because of Jesus. Hope in the hurting. Because see, hope is meant to be a shot of adrenaline. Hope is meant to move us forward. Unfortunately, most Christians believe hope is a sedative meant for peace. And in fact, hope is strength meant to move you forward, slingshot engage, and send you down the track of life to help the people around you. Hope is a burst of energy. Problem is, most of us, time destroys our hopes. We've had hopes fade and then die. And we lose our sense of wonder about a God who would care for us so much that he would create the world even to begin with. And then when we, through our own volition, disrespect the creator of the universe, that he would send his son, his only son, to this earth to die for us in order to make a way for us to be reconciled back to him because something's keeping us from him. And we know that thing is sin. And God loves us so much that he would make a way for our sins to be forgiven. We get distracted by wealth and power and fame, even though those are dead hopes, temporary hopes, hopes that are dependent upon a fallen, shakable world, susceptible to wars and famines. And we, like our boy Demas, fall in love with the world. And we exchange the created thing for the creator. And the result is churches are dying by the thousands. And millions of people never get to hear the hope and gospel of the world. Because listen, nobody's attracted to dying things. 
if there's any one thing this church is passionate about, it's about making this a life-giving place for the hope of the world that is Jesus. When people ask me what I do for a living, I tell them I'm a hope dealer. I deal in hope. You want to change your life? I can help you do that through the power of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. That's the thing that I'm most passionate about. You connecting to the God of the universe and finding freedom in him. Figuring out why he created you and then making a difference in the world. That's what we do. Bring people into a saving relationship with Jesus, build them up in the faith, equip them for ministry and send them out in the mission in the world to change the world because I think that's what God asked us to do. This is why if you're going to make it through in life, it's going to require you to look radically different than the world. You're going to have to look like an alien. We don't look like the rest of the world because we don't trust in the world. And the passing of time in a Christian's life doesn't cause our hope to die. No, it causes our hope to increase because we're no, we're, we know we're one minute closer to Jesus Christ coming back and making all things new. And us spending an eternity in heaven with him. Write this down and we're done. Trust in the process even when you don't see the progress. Trust the process of enduring through trial even when we don't see the progress. Because one day God's going to make it all worth it. Christians are not different in terms of what we go through, but in how we go through it. And in how we go through it is in a life-giving way, finding hope in the God of the universe, knowing that this is not going to last forever. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for each person that is here today. Thank you for this letter from Peter. Thank you for uh, allowing it to endure for thousands of years. Thank you for the men and women who gave their lives so that we could have a copy of it today. Thank you for the freedom that we have to come and gather in this place and read from it freely. Thank you for the men and women, again, that have helped make that possible. God, we're just right now trying to humble ourselves, shut off everything that's happening in our brains and hear from you. God, I'm asking you to do what only you can do right now and just speak to our hearts. Challenge us in these ways. Help us view our trials through new light. As we continue to pray, I believe that God is speaking to you right now. Maybe encouraging you, maybe challenging you. Perhaps he's asking you to surrender your life maybe for the very first time. That this living hope through Jesus Christ, maybe this is the first time that that's really light bulb moment for you. And God is saying, surrender. There's freedom here in the forgiveness of sin. I just want to give you a chance to do that right now because yes and amen to a living hope in Christ, but you don't know when that living hope is going to come back or when you might be called home. And so I want to give you a chance just to know in your heart that you've been forgiven and that you'll spend an eternity with Christ. You can just say, God, I believe in your son Jesus that he died on a cross but rose from the dead and I have hope in him. Forgive my sin. Draw me close to you. Change my life. God, thank you for changed lives. 
Thank you for the message of hope. Help us encounter the world in a different way when we leave this place. Help us make a difference for you. We ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Would you guys stand and worship with us?